Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Good to be here. Good day. I just love those little voices, don't you? It's just awesome. <laughs> Let's go. That's right. Enthusiasm. We love it. Jesse, where's your enthusiasm? <laughs> Did you give it all to your kids or what? <laughs> all right, we will. Okay, we've had a lot of int- uh, introductory comments about uh, where we're at today in the sermon time, and, and uh, it's one of the great things about pastoral preaching is you get to, to develop things over a period of weeks and months and years, and, and uh, we've been in the gospel, uh, according to John, now for, uh, well, I think this is uh, uh, 11, maybe 11 weeks or, or so uh, today. And uh, we're in John chapter 12. And uh, John chapter 12 marks a clear transition in John. Jesus' public ministry draws to a close as he prepares to teach the greatest lesson of all. The sacrifice, sacrificing of himself for you and I. The first 11 chapters uh, cover about three years of Jesus' life teaching and healing. But now here we are in John chapter 12, and we're into the last week of Jesus' life, followed by his crucifixion and, of course, his glorious resurrection. Now, there's 50 verses, 50 verses in John chapter 12, and so that's a lot So I want to start with just a really quick overview. Alex uh, mentioned a few of these things. Uh, So we have Mary anointing Jesus in Bethany, uh, followed by the plot to kill Lazarus. And then it moves into an account of what we often call the triumphal entry, where Jesus rides in Jerusalem on the the, uh, donkey. Uh, And then following that, some Greeks come Uh, wanting to see Jesus, which precipitates a discourse uh, or teaching time by Jesus on his impending crucifixion, and we're going to be focusing on that today. And then that is followed by the unbelief of the Jewish leaders and then some final words from Jesus to the crowds. So that's kind of a little bit of an overview of the chapter. So let's... uh, Let's go. Let's go. That's what, she, that's what they said, right? You heard, you heard her. I don't know if that was her or him. I'm not sure uh, on the way at the door there. But uh, the, events, the events here in this chapter are set at the beginning of the week uh, leading up to the Passover celebration. The text say, says in uh, Mark, sorry, John chapter 12, verse 1, it says... 
six days before the Passover. So that is, is where we're at. And you probably know already that Jesus was crucified in conjunction with the Jewish feast of Passover. And you may recall in the very first week in this series when we were in John chapter 1 that John the Baptist declared there that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And of course, the Passover um, is centered around the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So reading then from verse 1, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? And given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7 says, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. The account of Mary anointing Jesus is positioned here in John as a starting point of the events uh, of the last week leading up to Jesus' impending death. And that is made clear by Jesus' comment here in reference to Mary and her act of worship. Uh, at this point in John, the cross of Jesus becomes imminent. It's been there all along. I mentioned John 1.29, where Jesus is declared to be the Lamb of God, the sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. The cross has been view in view the whole time because that's why he came. But it is at this point in John where Jesus' teaching ministry and preaching ministry and healing ministry is now complete. Um, he's presented himself to the people as the prophesied Messiah, King, and now his hour has come. He's returning to Jerusalem where the officials are hell-bent on killing him. And if you were with us last Sunday, you heard Josh point out that the raising of Lazarus from the dead was the culmination of the seven great sign miracles in John. And Lazarus is now walking around and everyone is pointing to him saying, there he is right there. He was a walking, talking miracle like they had never seen before. Verse 9 says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, 
they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That's mind-boggling, isn't it? It's like this guy has been miraculously raised from the dead. We need to kill him. It just goes to show how blind these men were by the hatred they had for Jesus and by their love for their own positions. It says in verse 12, the next day the large crowd had come that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's a direct quote, of course, from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the Old Testament prophet. And it's a direct fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, though it does not appear that the people really understood or were really aware that this prophecy was being fulfilled because it says in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. When Jesus was glorified, what we are going to be thinking about today has a lot to do with Jesus being glorified. And I really appreciated the songs we were able to sing together this morning in regard to that. It is a key concept here, and Jesus will be expanding on it later in our text. It says in verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he, was, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And so this once again is, a, is an indication of the impact of the raising of Lazarus. Verse 19 says, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. You sense a desperation here on the part of the Pharisees because they, they feel that the crowds that are following Jesus should be following them. Verse 20 says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, sir, we, we would see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and they told Jesus. Philip is uh, a Greek name, and perhaps maybe that's why they uh, approached Philip on this. But whatever the case, it is significant. Because Jesus has been doing these amazing, miraculous signs and the raising of Lazarus in particular. Uh, but the Greeks coming to see Jesus appears to be a sign to Jesus. 
that his time is at, is at hand, that his hour has come. Josh, uh, pointing, in pointing out last week that Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus was a culmination of Jesus' uh, miracles. Uh, you may recall uh, him mentioning about the, um, uh, and this is from chapter 11, verse 4, this illness, Lazarus' illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Do you remember that? Uh, and he mentioned last week that that seemed to reflect back to uh, John chapter 9 and the blind man where the disciples were saying, you know, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus said, neither. He said, uh, but this is for the glory of God. And if you go all the way back to the very first miracle that Jesus did as it's recorded in John, that would be the miracle that took place where? At the wedding in Canaan of Galilee in uh, John chapter 2. And we see there it says in John chapter 2 verse 11, this the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And you uh, may recall last week as well, Jesus' words to Mary. He said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? It's a very, very significant word, glory, and it's a very significant theme in these pages and in these sacred pages that we're, we've been studying and here in chapter 12, Jesus talks about being glorified. Verse 23, Jesus answered them. When they came to Jesus and said, there's some Greeks that want to talk to you. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead, the last of his great miracles uh, that were all intended to bring glory to him. And they approach him and they say, Lord, Master, teacher, there's these Greek guys over here and they want to see you. And Jesus' response is significant in verse 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now the word glory is a significant biblical word going all the way back through the Old Testament. I think you probably know that. It's uh, predominant usage uh, at Mount Sinai when God had called Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and called them out into uh, to the, to the site at Mount Sinai to make them a, a, a new people. And, and when God revealed himself there and gave them the law and, and including the design for the, the tabernacle where they would worship God, and the idea there is it's, uh, there's a, a, a focus on the presence of God and the glory of God. Remember, if, well, you may remember, maybe you never read this part, but the last chapter in the book of Exodus where they have the tabernacle all complete and all the furnishings complete and all the priest's robes done and all their garments all done and all the instructions for all the whole sacrificial system all done and all laid and everything. And it says there, the, some of the very last words in the chapter says, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. If you go ahead into the time of uh, uh, David or Solomon, rather, 
the, the temple, you have the same statement made with when Solomon finished the temple. It says, the glory of God filled the house. It's referred to the house of the Lord. The glory of God filled the house of the Lord. Now, glory is not an easy term to define. Some terms are not easy to define. Um, and this would be, certainly would be one of them. Um, but a simple working definition of glory would be a, a, a display of greatness. Now, again, words fail us. That's why glory is a hard word to define because it's hard to put something this tremendous, this magnificent into terms. But a simple working definition that will help us is to understand that glory is a display of greatness. So Jesus is saying here in this passage that what is about to happen to him is going to be a display of greatness. He said the Son of Man is going to be glorified, exalted. And then he says, we're in we're at verse 24. Uh, we're going to read verse 24, 25, and 26. Jesus says, the Son of Man is about to be glorified. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, I don't know how many times you've read this, and I don't know how many times you've heard the story of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, but one could be excused for wondering at this point what this has to do with being glorified. It sounds kind of like the opposite of being glorified. And I want to come back to this part of the chapter when we get to the end, because I, I think there's something for us there that we, here that we just really need to spend some time thinking about and looking at. But for now, let's move on in, in the text. It says in verse 27, because Jesus continues and he says here, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. That's the reason he came. We are about to see the fulfillment of the reason Jesus came to this earth. And then he, he prays, Father, glorify your name. It says, then a voice came from heaven, and the voice said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Can you imagine an audible voice from heaven? What must that have been like? What was that like? Well, it says in verse 29, the crowds that stood there and heard it said that it, that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come 
for your sake, not mine. And then verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This whole section is dripping with irony. The authorities are saying, we have to, we've got to get rid of this guy. We need to string him up. Because the whole world is going to be following him. And Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. It says in verse 33, he said this to show what, man, what manner of death he was going to die. Jesus was physically lifted up from the earth on the cross to die. But Jesus was exalted on the cross because it is in the cross that Jesus defeats sin and death and hell. It is by the cross and from the cross that he draws all people to himself. D.A. Carson, the New Testament theologian, says the exaltation of Jesus by means of the cross is also the exaltation of Jesus on the cross. George Beasley Murray observed that the judgment of this world takes place when Jesus is lifted up, and he says that Jesus is lifted up via the cross to the throne of heaven. It is by the cross we are saved. It is by the cross the world is judged. It is by the cross that the devil is defeated. If you look in Hebrews chapter 2, it says there that he defeated the, uh, the devil by his death. We look at the cross and we see what? What do you see when you look at the cross of Jesus? You know, that's a really important question. What do you see on display when you look and see Jesus lifted up on that cross? Verse 34 says, the crowds answered him, we have heard from the law that, the, that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. While you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. I mentioned this back when we were in John chapter 7, uh, where Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world. I mentioned there that, that the, the word light occurs 22 times in the gospel of John, and uh, it, it, it's used a lot right here in this, this, word, this cluster of references right here in that passage. And I also mentioned uh, back there a few weeks ago about uh, how the last occurrence of the word light is here in this passage. In verse 46, he came unto his own as light of the world, and his own received him not. We need to behold Jesus in all his glory, in all his greatness. 
Glory is a word that's associated in Scripture. It's associated with brightness, uh, splendor, like the glory of the sun. Someday, Scripture says this, John writing again, this time he's writing in Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the city. He's talking about the new city, the new Jerusalem. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And then he says this, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. We need to behold Jesus in all his glory. In verse 36, the last part of verse 36, it says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And you get a sense of finality here in all of this. The light is coming to the world, but men like love darkness more than light. John chapter 3. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. John chapter 1. Prophecy is being fulfilled. Verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand and hear with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw what? His glory. Uh, that's, by the way, that's a really good verse for Jehovah's Witnesses. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. John chapter 12. Isaiah said this because he saw the glory of Jesus. Nevertheless, verse 42, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It's a major theme here. What remains uh, in this chapter are some final words from Jesus for the crowds. And then the next scene we have, starting in, verse, in chapter 13, is Jesus with his disciples in the upper room. He will not be addressing the crowds anymore. After that, we have the scene in the garden where Jesus is taken. So this is it. His hour has come, and all of it, is in fulfillment of prophecy about him. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Think about those words. 
They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Glory in Scripture, the reference can mean either the attributes, attributes or qualities of greatness possessed by a thing or a person, or it can also mean the recognition of that, which goes along with the Greek word for glory, which means reputation. So when we say things like, or when Scripture says, give glory to God, it's not like we're actually giving God anything, right? But what are we doing? When you, when, when you give God the glory, what are you doing? You're recognizing or acknowledging that he is glorious, that he is the greatest. We need to be, behold Jesus in all his glory. Let's finish the chapter, and then I want to just go back and, uh, and spend a few moments just looking at those few verses. Verse 44, Jesus cried out, and he said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in whom, him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me, that's the last time he'll use that word in John, Whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness, but if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but him who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Later on in, in John, you know it, John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Philip says, Show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus looks him right in the eye and says, have I been with you all this time and you do not even know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. We need to behold him in all his glory. How ironic is it that Jesus would proclaim the cross as his being glorified? his display of greatness. We tend to think that that would have been Jesus at his weakest, at his poorest, at his humiliation. The cross was the ultimate symbol of public humiliation. You probably have seen the movies that have been made in these days, and it gives you that kind of that graphic illustration in this, in this week leading up to, to uh, the crucifixion of Christ where Jesus is walking along the road with his disciples, and they look over at the hill, and there's these crosses on the hill, and there's these thieves and robbers and murderers hanging there. Because crucifixion wasn't something that they just reserved for Jesus. It was for anybody they wanted to completely humiliate and annihilate, publicly disgrace and shame. How ironic that Jesus would proclaim the cross as his glorification. 
we would, we would go back to the triumphal entry, wouldn't we? We would say that's glorification. When Jesus got on that donkey, which was the mount of a king, and rode into Jerusalem as king, and all the people shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to him who comes in the name of the Lord. We'd say that's glorification, but Jesus said, no, that's not, that's not the way this is going to go down. And in less than a week's time, he'll be coming out of the city of Jerusalem, bearing a cross. And Jesus said, that will be my glory. That is where the glory and the greatness of God in Christ will be put on display for all the world to see. Now, I want you to come back with me to verse 24. And I'm going to try to do this in good time as I realize I'm pretty much getting to the end of my time uh, allotment here. But um, Jesus' initial words in this chapter when he first talks about now is my hour come. The Son of Man is about to be glorified. His initial words there are strikingly, well, they're paradoxical. He says, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I know this might be hard for those of us who get our, our food from the local grocery store, to appreciate, but just pretend. Imagine that you are a kid living in an ancient agrarian culture and your dad takes you out in, in, on, the, on a cool spring morning out in the field. He says to you, here's what we're going to do, Bobby. We're going to take the last of our food and we're going to bury it here in the ground. I know people don't call their kids Bobby anymore, but I'm old so I can get away with that. It's going to take faith to do that, isn't it? I mean, seriously, think about it. It's going to take some faith to believe that what looks like death actually produces life. But if you study the teachings of Jesus, you will find out that this is actually at the very heart of what he taught, not about death, but about life. It's not just here. It's throughout the teachings of Jesus. I'll, I'll use the example of Jesus uh, says about giving. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What, what, what's he saying? He's saying, you get more when you give than when you take. That's absurd. That makes absolutely no sense at all on a earthly human plane. It only makes sense when we realize that there are things about life that we need to understand from the perspective that only comes from the revelation of God in Christ. It's not only paradoxical, it's counterintuitive. Therefore, we have to learn it because it doesn't come naturally. The only way we can learn it is by exercising faith. Say, Lord, if, if you say so, 
I believe, I believe in you. I believe you. Of course, he didn't just say it. He's going to go on to demonstrate it. And that's really important. You may recall how in the upper room the disciples were arguing. What were they arguing about? Who would be the greatest? What's our working definition of glory? Reputation in the Greek word for glory. Display of greatness. Here they are having an argue about men about who was going to be the greatest. And what did Jesus say? He said, if you want to be the greatest, you got to what? You've got to become the servant of all. That's upside down, isn't it? It would seem. Actually, Jesus probably would say, no, that's right side up. How relevant is that to this part of Scripture we're in right here? Well, look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. That where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. Commentator, biblical commentator William Barclay says, it's only when we bury our personal ambitions that we become useful to God. One of Jesus' favorite sayings that's repeated over and over again in, in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke, is this saying, whoever humbles himself, uh, exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In verse 25 here, Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, you can call that a riddle if you want. But if it is a riddle, it's a spiritual riddle. And how many of you know this? Let me give you just a little example of how this could possibly be true. If you make your personal happiness the goal of your life, you will never be happy. Now, I can guarantee that. If you make your own personal happiness the goal of your life, you will never be happy. But if you make loving God and loving others the goal of your life, guess what? You know what? Now, there's so many different directions we could go with this, and I realize that the time is, is uh, fleeting here. Um, but think about a couple things with me, if you, if you would. Uh, the glory of God, the display of the greatness of God is associated in Scripture with brightness. I said that already. It's splendor. Also, beauty would be another thing. And it's also associated with God's presence. I mentioned the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament where the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, where the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. In John chapter 1, you, don't, you can turn there if you want, but just listen to me. You recall this. In John chapter 1, John starts his gospel account. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, the true light which gives light to everyone. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the person of Jesus Christ, God has come. He's not a God far away. He has come and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In the Greek, that word dwelt is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. Think about that for a moment. When we began this chapter with Mary anointing Jesus' feet with precious perfume, and it says there that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And I have to confess to you that I've read over that many times and not recognized it for what it is because the symbolism there is incredible. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The glory of Jesus. Or we could go in a different direction here and go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. You know John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. And so should we lay down our lives for our brothers, for one another. What do you see when you look at the cross? Let me quote, read a couple of verses here as uh, we get ready to close. This is the Apostle Paul. Have you read these words before? Paul says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. He said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The cross of Jesus was the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen. But it is also the greatest lesson that Jesus ever taught. As I um, pondered my way through this material over the last few weeks, thinking, reading, studying, praying, all those things that you do when you when you have to speak on a passage of scripture, songs kept popping into my head. Because there's so many songs. We sang some of them today. It's this morning, right? About him being lifted up forever glorified. And so as I'm going through, all these songs uh, keep kept popping into my head. Uh, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Or another one that popped into my head was from 1707. You know that one? Isaac Watts. 
When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. Um, why don't you stand with me this morning? I love uh, uh, Chris, uh, is it Chris Tomlin? Yeah, Chris Tomlin wrote a chorus for that one. Pardon? Yeah, he's great, isn't he? Tremendous song reader and great worship leader. He wrote a chorus to that song. It's called, Oh, the Wondrous Cross. Oh, wonder, oh, the Wondrous Cross. Bids me come and die and find that I might truly live. There is a paradox here. There is a, a striking irony in all of this. But there's a truth here that God wants to get our attention with. And we need to behold him in all his glory. The greatest act of love the world has ever seen, but also the greatest lesson Jesus ever taught. Um, I, what I'd like to do something in, in, uh, in closing, just a song. Um, simple little, little song, you might know it. Um, if you don't, you'll know it when we're done because it's really simple. I'll tell you what the words are. They're so simple. In my life, Lord, be glorified. Be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today. That's it. That's pretty simple. How many of you know that song? Yeah, that's what, kind of what I thought. So for those of you who don't know it, the tune is really simple. In my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today. So now you all know it. Let's sing in, in your church, Lord. Let's sing that. In your church, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In your church, Lord, be glorified today. Now, if you feel led, and only if you feel led. But if you feel led to do this, I want you to put your hand up like this, your right hand. Put your right hand up like this and repeat after me. Are you ready? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. Lord, I... Glorify your name. Let's sing with me. In my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today.
Pray with me, will you? Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for your willingness to endure the cross. Thank you for the incredible love and grace fully on display. The amazing love of God, the grace of God fully on display. Thank you, Lord, for loving us that much. You loved us more than life. Help us, Lord, to not only appreciate your great love and grace for us, Lord, help us to know that that is the path that you call us to walk, laying down our lives for you and for others, and in the end, discovering that that is where life comes from. Help us, Lord, in these things, that you would be glorified in our lives. Lord Jesus, we glorify you this day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.